all full of authentic points of view. Myself alone have at least 22. They come from the things that we have been through. Those things can either make or break you. Life is full of ups and downs. It's our choice to either smile or frown. Please choose to smile today. Because it's one thing that's free to give away. People say that life isn't hard. It's what you make of it. But what if only struggle surrounds you? What can you take from it? Life can be hard and some things aren't fair. Please listen to others just to be aware. All I'm saying, you never know what someone's going through. Just because they look happy doesn't make it true. Hopefully this podcast will help you see. You are not alone. You have at least got me. We are more alike than you may know. But if we stay quiet, we will never grow. Don't ever give up because you got this. If you quit, think of all the opportunities that you could miss. We are all full of authentic points of view. Myself alone have at least 22. They come from the things that we have been through. Those things can either make or break you. Life is full of ups and downs. It's our choice to either smile or frown. Please choose to smile today. Because it's one thing that's free to give away. People say that life isn't hard, it's what you make of it, but what if only struggle surrounds you, what can you take from it? Life can be hard and some things aren't fair, please listen to others just to be aware. All I'm saying, you never know what someone's going through, just because they look happy doesn't make it true. Hopefully this podcast will help you see, you are not alone, you have at least got me. We are more alike than you may know, but if we stay quiet, we will never grow. Don't ever give up, because you got this. Think of all the opportunities that you could miss. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Authentic Points of View. I'm Danielle Boer, your host, as always. Woohoo! All right, so we have an amazing guest today. I am so excited to talk to him because. It seems like he is just so strong and so resilient and he's helping so many people. Um, and I'm so, I'm, I love that about people. So Skip Sams, he's an award-winning composer, performing artist, multimedia uh, producer, and sober coach. Skip has been sober over 16 years um, in recovery from crystal meth, alcoholism, and he has bipolar disorder. Welcome, Skip, to the show. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm so <laughs> excited to talk to you. So, um, yay. yay, I really am, like, tr- truly, like, I'm, I'm genuinely. And so, okay, when, um, when were you diagnosed with bipolar? Like, how old were you? And then did it affect your music career at all? I was diagnosed with bipolar in 2005, but that's an interesting question because, I I mean, I had, was diagnosed with clinical depression in my early twenties, my very early twenties, and, um, and I knew, so I had a family member who was diagnosed, I mean, this was the early 80s, 
we didn't, there was no term bipolar at that point. It was manic depressive. Right. And this family member was diagnosed family depressive or family. <laughs> Families can be depressive, can't they? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Especially at Thanksgiving. No, this is right, right. Um, <laughs> diagnosed manic depressive. And I did, you know, I was, even as a teenager, I, I didn't study stuff in school as well as I did. I mean, I did, but I didn't do it as well as I did things that I wanted to know about. This is before Google. So I would go to the library and I remember one, I wanted to know what manic depressive was. So I went to the library and looked it up and I'm looking at the symptoms and I'm like, well, that's me, you know, that's me. And, um, I, I don't think I ever really shared that with anyone for a long time, but yeah, I was, I was dealt, I, I was dealing with depression. Depression, um, it had its periods where, you know, I, I couldn't do anything. So I wasn't doing music at all. I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. You know, I, I would, I remember a couple periods where I was just on the sofa. Um, those kind of, those periods are kind of, um, not blackouts, but I don't remember much about those periods other than I went through a, a dark spell. Does that, you know, does that make sense? I, I don't oh, remember. Absolutely. What yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what happened during those periods. I'm sure I, you know, I think I missed a lot of work, which I worked for my family. I'm thinking about one of the instances, but you know, it, it came and went. And sometimes it was triggered by circumstances. Um, and sometimes it just, you know, but I was, I was diagnosed bipolar in 2005 and it was a difficult um, diagnosis because I was uh, in the depths of crystal meth addiction at the time. Oh, so it, and actually I thought crystal meth was my cure for bipolar or for, cause I wasn't manic, you know, and I, I, it calmed me down or the eight, you know, whatever I thought it was just how my brain was always going. And I was always, it calmed that down, but I was never depressed in the beginning. Mm. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, and many addicts, I, Many, many, many addicts. I don't know if it's most, I don't know the statistics, but I know it's very common for addicts and alcoholics to have some kind of mental illness. Well, addiction, and now finally we are looking at um, addiction as a mental disorder, which I'm very happy about that. Um, but we self-medicate, right? We self-medicate. Absolutely, and, and yep. In the beginning, it's socially acceptable. You know, oh my God, look what they did. They fucked up here. Have a drink, feel better. You know, um, sorry, am I allowed to say the F word? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay. You can. <laughs> um, I always forget to ask that beforehand so I can make sure I watch my, I don't, I don't curse a lot, but you know, when this stuff comes up, you know, the F bombs come out once in a while. Um, but they, okay. they were able to, they made a diagnosis in 2005 based mm -hmm. upon the stories I told them about my past. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, also what family members and extended family members, you know, how did it run in the family? What kind of 
Um, you know, my grandmother was at least oppressed. I kind of look back on it and I don't know, but I, I think um, she might have had a bipolar disorder, you know, just looking at symptoms, but I'm not a doctor and she was never diagnosed. So I can't say that for sure. Yeah. But based on all that, they made a decision or to, to treat me for it um, the best they could, being on crystal meth. When I got sober, I got sober. If we want to, I, there was a point I was about to kill myself. I was so depressed. Mm -hmm. And then that's what got me to being sober. Um, nine months after I got sober, for nine months, I was like, we call it a pink cloud. Mine was not pink. It was magenta. I was so full of joy to be, you know, to surrender and to the drug and just be like, nope, I'm powerless and be on the road to recovery. Out of nowhere, this depression just like, bam, took me way down. And I was like, damn, this is why I got sober. I mean, I was in this state of depression yeah. and I was, I was having thoughts of suicide again. I wasn't making a plan, nor did I want to, right? I didn't have the desire to commit my suicide, but those thoughts were coming back. And that it was a good day if I got out of bed and got on the sofa and turned on the prices right and watched and, and did a Sudoku puzzle. That was a good day during those six weeks. That, um, that depression was a gift because it was through that there had been no drugs or alcohol of any sort in my system for nine months. So they were able to make a, wow. a confirmed diagnosis and start treating the true, the true diagnosis and the true symptoms, not the uh, side effects of street drugs. Wow. So, so how, so let me ask you this. Do you remember like how you felt when you were high on the drugs or is it all like a blur? Like, do you remember the feeling that it made you feel, you said it calmed you down, but like, well, there's, you, you know, there's so like many, I mean, before meth, I mean, I was always a pothead. I, okay. um, actually I found pot after I did drugs and alcohol pop, um, cocaine. I did before I did pot. Um, so it wasn't my gateway drug. Um, <laughs> it's not my gateway drug. Not for you. No, no, no. In fact, it's so, I mean, this is the true sign of an addict. The first time I did pot, um, I got so dizzy and I got sick and I threw up everywhere and I was like, oh, let's smoke some more. Oh boy. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the sign. That's when you know there's... <laughs> you, you might have an addiction problem. It's not even the oh. particular substance. It's just a, um, so, you know, I, but I was always one who wanted uppers. I was down. I was, you know, I may have a bipolar disorder, but always lean on the side of depression. You know, depression is like 90% of the time. And a lot of those times, um, it's so funny. There are times where, I mean, I've, I've been pretty stable, um, over the last 
16 years, but there are still times where it's like you need med adjustments or there are life situations that, you know, trigger something. And, and it's, it's normal for everyone, anyone to feel a bit of depression at some point in their life. You know, right. That, that's not abnormal. Um, but, you know, for us with, uh, you know, it's, it's a little more uh, dangerous, but I always wanted the uppers. Like, I mean, heroin? No, 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 no. Um, I always wanted to feel that up. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, you're but- good. You're, yeah, you, whatever you authentically, whatever you say is, is awesome is, um, whatever is pertains to you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, hopefully us talking about this will help somebody out there. That's you're not alone if you're addicted to drugs and this is what he does. So when we talk about what he does, this is amazing. And so, um, so he turned it around and now helps other people. But when you, I've, I'm a nurse, so I've seen people come off of drugs. Um, were you physically ill for those few weeks? Like, like sick, ill, shaking, or how, how no. did you feel? Um, no, that's good. Coming off crystal meth, um, it takes I, more than anything, you just need to sleep. Okay. Um, cause for three years, um, I slept an average of one day a week, one night a week. Oh my gosh. It's horrible. Yeah. I would sleep on Sunday nights and, uh, I would go to my partner. We were separated at the time, but I would go home. He would make dinner for me and we'd start to watch a movie, but I'd always fall asleep and I would stay the night and I would sleep through the day and I would get up right before he was going to come home. And then I would go back out. Wow. Yeah. So that's, so that's when you were on it though, right? Not the recovery part. No, that's when you were but your, your body, after, you know, yeah. once you stop it, um, yeah. it's like it, rest. The body, it needs like a lot yeah. of rest. They also, but the other challenge was my brain would not stop. Yes. The thought, you know, after, after the initial like week of the body exhaustion, um, I still, I still, um, have insomnia very bad because wow. my brain was just trained to, and it's, uh, you know, 16 and a half years later. So I do take some, I, I do take a sleep med to help me and, uh, just, you know, even a mild one, but my, my brain does not stop. It's still the chatter. Blah, 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 blah. I could be so freaking tired. And, you know, I think that happens to, you know, it's, it's not abnormal. That happens to a lot of, yeah, I go through at that some too. point, especially when we're under stress, but, um, mine just does not stop. Oh, well, yeah. At least, at least sleeping meds help you. That's good because I've tried certain things and it didn't help me because I have been through that where I had so bad insomnia that I just, I mean, even now I only sleep three or four hours a night. Like you know, so it's it's hard. I mean, and it's you need sleep. Um, and I know somebody that um used to uh do cocaine and they said that they never slept. Like literally. Yeah. Like once, like you said, like once a week they would finally sleep, but it was just like, you just 
where like the energizer bunny just kept going and going and going. And, um, so yeah. So, okay. Now, um, it was, it was, um, you know, when I get, it's funny, like when I, um, you, you were saying you sleep two or three hours or four hours a night. There are times where it's so interesting because when I get like down or, you know, I'm down for a period or if I've just, there are times I think, damn, I wish I was manic. I wish I was manic. I would be able to do stuff. I wish I had manic. And then I become manic and I'm like, oh my God, this is so awful. I wish I would just go away, <laughs> you know, but it's, yeah. it's like, it's, it's like that wishing because mania brings about a certain high feeling. Right. Um, and, you know, it seems like that sounds like a good idea, but when I have it, it's like, no, this is too painful. I, I'm, you know, so luckily I don't get that often, but, um, well, I know a lot of, um, people with bipolar and, um, my son has bipolar. Um, and so not with him, he's younger, but maybe with him too. Cause he went through some things, but I had a friend, a female friend that was bipolar and she would get addicted to stuff like randomly. Like, so she would have like six weeks where she would spend all of her money on lotto tickets and lie to her husband and like hide it. And she just couldn't stop doing it. She, like she just had to keep doing it. And then she would have like a, uh, that was in a, like a manic state. It probably wasn't that many weeks, but, and then she would get really, really depressed. Cause look what I did. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I just wasted this money. I'm lying to my husband. And then she would go manic again and she would do something else. And so I saw her go through that roller coaster and it is, it's hard. It makes me so sad. Like, because I feel so bad and, um, it's just like, she had no control over it. She just like would go through those things. Um, but with my son, he would get to the point where he just wanted to like, he would just want to fight everybody. Like that was his, like, ah! yeah, and like, yeah. yeah, like he just didn't know how to like channel the energy and just like, yeah. it was just everywhere. And I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> like, come on, you're okay. And, um, everything got him excited. Like even if it excited, bad, excited, good, excited, whatever. Um, there was no in the middle with him. There's like, and I mean, he's 19 now, so he's calmed down a lot, but there was no in the middle. He was like either one way or the other. And it was, it's, it's hard, you know, and as a loved one and as a parent, you want to fix it. And you're just like, what do I, what do I do? And, um, and then he started, um, I don't talk about this on here, but, um, he started smoking, uh, weed young and that was hard. And I was trying to get him off of it. Then he got in trouble in probation. I mean, he's been through a lot. And so, um, then he went to jail and, um, like kids jail, but still, um, and that was one of the best things that happened to him because when he got on juvenile probation in Georgia, 17 is a legal adult somehow it's weird in the judicial system, but not in the everything else. So he, I told him, this is what we told him because it was true. If you got in trouble one more time, you're now 17, you're going to go to adult probation. It's going to carry you through your jobs, through your life, through everything. So that scared him. And the last time he went to juvenile, I don't want to call it a prison, but the jail, um, we kept him in there because he was getting into so much bad stuff. It was dangerous. It was dangerous for him and others. So he stayed in there for days. And then he was like, oh, this 
this crap ain't for me. And so and luckily, you know, and then he moved, I let him move with his father because his father used to get in a lot of trouble. His father definitely has to be bipolar. Again, never got diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure of it. And then, um, but yeah, so it's like seeing his dad at 40 still, you know, being whatever, it actually opened his eyes and he doesn't get in trouble anymore. He's doing great in society and I'm so happy for him. So, you know, you're right. Sometimes it takes those down moments to, to, to open your eyes and be like, Oh shit, I don't want to live like this. You know, like I cannot. Um, so what, when were you diagnosed with, HIV and then what was your reaction if you're going through all this stuff already how did you feel when you got that diagnosis uh it was 2004 um so I was in the depths of addiction um so I was you know I was I, well, I was using, I was using intravenously. Um, I was always trying to use clean needles. Um, so there, I don't want to go too in depth about this, but there was a certain incident and I can't know for sure exactly if that's where I got it. Um, so on one hand, it doesn't matter. Um, but when I got so there, there was a, there were a couple different layers there of like how I how I felt, right? Okay. Um, and um, but it did. I, I got so freaking lonely. Um, oh. It was it was very. I when I was infected. I had like the the textbook severe like um two weeks after I was infected, I got very sick and in and since was a blessing because I could have gone for months and maybe you know and a year and not known I got tested pretty regularly. So I wouldn't have, I may not have known if I didn't get so sick, but I was so sick. Um, and I went to, um, I went, I went home to my partners and, um, I was for two weeks. And finally at the end of the second week, he was like, either you're getting in a cabin, going to the hospital or I'm coming to the ER where I'm having the ambulance come and get you. Yeah. So I went to the hospital and um, they thought the doctors immediately thought I had meningitis mm. because of all of my symptoms. And um, they were doing, they wanted to do, um, I can't think of it right now. My brain just. Like a lumbar puncture or spinal tap or something spinal like that. Spinal tap. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I kept telling them, I'm like, you don't need to, I don't have meningitis. I have, I'm, I'm zero converting. Uh, and they're like, how do you know that? So zero converting is the, is the point where the virus becomes active in your body. Mm. So it's come. And that's when like, you could get tested before, even though the virus is in your body and, it, you test zero negative, blood negative. Um, but then when you convert, 
to zero positive, that's the point where it becomes active and you test positive. Um, so I, I told them I'm zero converting and, uh, they're like, how do you know that? And so I told the, uh, I told the, the doctor, um, well, I told her what happened and she was like, God forbid, Mr. Sams, you are ever sexually assaulted again, but go to the emergency room right away because within 72 hours, you know, there's prophylactics that we doctors take if we're exposed that will right. most likely prevent. And I was like, why didn't I know that? This was 2004. And she was like, because the, uh, I remember she was like, because the federal administration doesn't want people to know about it because they don't want them to think of it as the after um, plan B pill. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's like, that kind of that information could have saved so many lives. Um, I don't know if that if I would have done that or not. I don't know because I was so high. Um, I was, you know, I would have been afraid of being in trouble for getting, you know, high or whatever. I may have, I may not have, but that Thursday. So, and and at that time in two thousand four, the emergency room was not allowed to administer HIV test. Wow. Um, the, 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 yeah, the, so once they realized it wasn't meningitis and I told them the story, they were sent me home that, I mean, they filled me up with like fluids and stuff through the IV, but then they sent me home <clears throat> and <clears throat> set up a, a appointment with follow-up with a doctor. So I went, <clears throat> sorry. It's okay. I went on that Monday to his office and got an HIV test and they did a, um, at that time, rapid wins had just become available rapid as in four days. Now it's like within 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Um, or five days it was then. So why they were at, the, why I was at the hospital, they were able to do blood work on, like uh, the virus, it's just weird. They couldn't do the test, but they were allowed to do the blood work to find out like the blood levels and the virus levels and um, the t, uh, t cell count and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, Thursday I went and my test came back, HIV test came back negative. Friday, I went back when he got the results for the blood work and my viral load was in the millions. Wow. And my T cells had dropped down to um, below 400, uh, which meant that they were just wiped out. Like, you know, the, vi the virus was like kicking in big time. Um, so that was, that was kind of, and it happened, it happened that my, this is really weird, uh, different circumstance, but my parents, when, when they thought I was dying from meningitis in the emergency room, they live 300 miles away. They were at my, they were at the hospital in six hours and wow. you know, they, they flew, uh, on the highway or the whole way there. And, uh, cause the doctor said, if he has meningitis, he probably has 24 hours. That's how sick I was. Wow. I mean, I was like, 
my shit was going across the room. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were there and then they went back to Ohio and then they came back the next weekend and were there for my follow-up doctor's appointment. So they were in the room when the, when I found out, um, that I had, um, when I got the, this, uh, the, um, they were in the room when I got the T cell count and, and the viral load count. And so mm-hmm. they were in the room when they found out it was HIV. And, um, I was just kind of, I was kind of numb, you know, um, and tired, exhausted. And yeah, I, it's that summer, that summer that followed, I remembered that I felt like, and then this happened again, but the depression set in so much that I just felt like there, I could not imagine that anyone on earth could feel any lonelier. Not saying that I was the only one who felt it, but I could not imagine anyone feeling it any more than what I was. So, and then, you know, I had people, people say stupid things. So the fact that I was sexually assaulted and that I have HIV are two, two different topics, right? Um, Mm -hmm. because whether I contracted HIV that way or not, I was sexually assaulted, right? That's, but there are, there are people, and this is why it's difficult to talk about them as the same thing, because people will want to say, well, you should have seen it coming, right? You're a drug addict. You were you know, having sex with multiple partners, you were shooting up and it was like, that's, so you should have, like, I deserve it. Right. And the message there at the same time is, well, you were sexually assaulted. You deserve it. You know, it's that, you see what I mean? It's like those two, they're two different topics. They're two different. Right. Um, I may have gotten it that way, and there's because of the way I got sick two weeks later after the incident happened and just the coincidence of it, I believe that's the way my doctors kind of thought that's probably how. Um, so that had to do, that came in more into play when I had to do some of my step work in recovery and matters of forgiveness and my resentments and working through all of that. That's when that really came into play. But nobody, Nobody deserves to get HIV. Nobody deserves to get COVID. Nobody, mm-hmm. it's not like we do something so we get sick, right? Um, there are precautions that we take um, to reduce the risk, but even with masks, people are getting COVID, right? So you wear a mask that it's it's reduces the risk but it doesn't take away the risk right um like i was using clean needles one of those need- needles could have been re you know i i didn't always make my own so somebody could have used but yeah it's you know it's that kind of 
And then we saw that come up again this last summer in the United States and, and Europe when monkeypox came about mm. and it suddenly become a gay disease. And it's like, it's no, it's not. You don't get monkeypox because you're gay. It's not a punishment, no. right? It's, it's, um, it's going through the community and the community can do things to like work and stop it, which we did. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, nobody deserves anything that could potentially kill you. I mean, or nobody deserves to get sexually <laughs> assaulted for goodness freaking sake. That, that, pisses me off and people just you know here's the thing everybody wants to judge and no i've talked about this several times uh even today actually earlier but everybody wants to judge but the people doing the judging and the bullying and all that stuff they're miserable themselves so yeah. it's like you know don't I, I hate that. But yeah, you have to forgive and you have to forgive yourself and the others and the people that have said things to you or that person that physically hurt you. That And that's hard to do, but you well, that, don't deserve that. that Nobody um, does. That, so how that, how that healing process took place was, uh, and my step work, the fourth step is we took a moral inventory of ourselves a fearless and moral inventory of ourselves. And that um, means courageous, you know, a courageous inventory. And there's certain things that we ask, like what's, what are the great misresentments I have? And it's difficult because we look at them and we name it, we name the person, we name the story. We talk about how it affects it does, you know, my, my self-esteem, my, my, um, affected my wallet, affected my, my, um, uh, my dreams that, you know, just, to, um, but then it comes back to what's my part in it. Right. And that's really difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's some of it's kind of easy. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm mad at my sister because she told my mom I did this, this, and she told on me and I did this and this. Well, what's my part in it? Well, I did this and this and this and lied to my mom or I lied yeah. to my sister about it. You know, there's like, or I tried to, I tried to blame my sister. So my sister had, to, you know what I mean? There's that kind of stuff that's, but yeah. then there's the stuff like I was sexually assaulted. What's my part in that? It was a crime. It was definitely a crime. And it took a while. And seeing my part in it does not, does not mean that I'm at fault. Okay. Right. Seeing my part in it does not mean I'm at fault. My part in it was the person I was hanging out with. He had tried something before. Um, but he had drugs and I continued to hang out with him. Mm -hmm. And when it happened, I was so high and I had been up for a week and I, I was on a sleeping night and I was so asleep that I didn't even know it happened. Wow. So 
what's my part in that? What everything he did was criminal. 100%. Um, and under different circumstances, if I wasn't high, I may have gotten DNA samples. I could have gotten, you know, so many things and had him convicted. But the point of it is to work at my part. I was high. I was high. I was not taking care of myself. Um, it doesn't take away the blame from him. It doesn't excuse mm -hmm. any bit of him. It doesn't make me at fault for it happening. I, you know, that's a, there's a very fine line there. I'm not blaming myself. I'm not putting myself at fault. But I have to take responsibility for my life. And when I realize that if I wasn't high, it wouldn't have happened. So I'm not blaming myself, but what can I take away from that? Don't get high. Right? Right. And, um, and forgive myself for being high and allowing me to put myself in that situation. And once I was able to do that, I'm able to forgive him. <clears throat> it's the weirdest thing. You know, it doesn't mean that I, doesn't mean that I forget it. Mm -mm. It doesn't mean that I think about it and I still, you know, still could get sad or angry, you know, or have certain emotions be triggered at certain times. Right. But I can, I can forgive myself. So I'm, I'm, again, I'm not, I would still have him convicted if, you know, but forgiveness could still take place because forgiveness is for giving me peace. Yeah, absolutely. And, That's, um, yeah, go ahead. So I, I, I'd like to continue this because there are people when I, when I talk about this, it's, it, Yes, there were there were people who were abused sexually or physically or mentally as kids. And what's their part in it? Children have no part in it. Right. You know, I was being sexually abused when I was 12 years old. I thought I was seeking it out. Right. But my sister pointed out to me once, Skip, if a 12 year old approached you, I'm like, oh, no, stop. Don't go there. And she's like, exactly. Those men were adults. Right. You may have like figured out a way to let them know, but so um, that was not my, you know, I don't have a part in that. Even if I thought I did, um, what is it today when I do that work? What's my part in it now? My part in it now is I'm, st if, I'm still reliving that trauma. If I keep reliving it, if I'm holding on to it today, and if I'm not getting treatment, if I'm not getting help, I'm the one who's living with it in today. Yeah. I'm the one who keeps recreating it in my head. That part I'm responsible for. That part I'm responsible for what happened. That's in the past. So that's where we talk about taking responsibility for our lives taking responsibility for what can I do now? How can I take care of that inner child, that 12 year old skip that was sexually molested over and over? How can I take care of him now? 
And that is, and, and I have been, you know, I'm, I've been a very good parent to that child, you know, since I got sober and, um, I, you know, I take care of him. I protect him. Um, I've gotten him treatment. You know, I'm talking about the inner child in me, right? I know exactly what you mean. Yep. Yep. And, um, wow. So you've made a lot of great points and I think this opens up eyes to people that maybe have never, so maybe they've never had a mental illness, right? I think we all have something going on, but, uh, they've never been diagnosed with something. They've never, uh, been addicted to drugs. Um, they've never been assaulted, but think about this. If you can put yourself in a 12 year old's shoes, how devastating would it be? How, how broken would you feel at the time? And it's not your fault. It's never the child's fault. You're right. It's not, it's not their fault. It's disgusting. It makes me so sad. And I'm so sorry you went through that, but people are so quick to judge, but just think about that. What if it's happening to your child or what if it's happening um, what if it happened to you when you were younger? Now, wouldn't you maybe go down the path of trying to cover it with anything that you could cover it with, right? And so that's the thing. If we all think about it from the other person's point of view, and that's why my show is called Authentic Points of View, but, but if you think about it from the other perspective and just say, hey, how would I feel if I was going through this? How would I get through this? You know, maybe I would be in the same situation as as you are skip i don't know so i'm so sorry you went through that but all this leads up to your coaching and you're actually just coached us right now so i i want to say thank you for that seriously the words that you said that's exactly probably what you help your clients with now when did you start the coaching how long after being um sober did you start coaching um the coaching part, it, it kind of happened gradually. It kind of happened okay. or, organically. I didn't start defining myself uh, as a coach until um, 2014 when I realized kind of what was happening. And I have very high respect for professional coaches um, and who are take the time to get um, training, make sure that they're involved in um you know, we don't have we don't have state regulations, but we do have organizations such as the International Federation of Coaches that uh, hold us to a very high ethical standard. And you know, so I wanted to make sure that I was uh, part of that team. You know, so I went back to school for a year. I went to University of Miami two years after I got sober. Uh, went back and got my master's in music. Wow. um, But I went back in 2014 for a year and got uh, certified as a professional coach. So I have a certification from the University of Miami in Florida. And I'm also, uh, along with that, um, um, (sighs) I forget the word. I, I... they're accredited by the International Coaching Federation, so awesome. I have, I'm certified by them as well. And um, but it, it started when I went to grad school, and um, 
Well, I'm going to go back a little further because this is kind of important of the path and like how I've gotten to the kind of coaching I am today. Sure. Um, when I got sober, I was not able to play the piano. I could not sing. Um, three years before, um, I was in 2012. So it'd been 20 years ago, like right around this time. It was a beautiful fall day and the sky was crystal blue and the leaves, the sun was just glowing like fluorescent orange on the trees and golden yellow, you know, is the perfect Midwest fall. And I'm in the back of a cab leaving my drug dealer's house and um, we're getting off the exit to my place. And I'm looking at all this beauty and just taking it in. And my thought was, I'm going to close my recording studio and become a crystal meth dealer so I can use full time. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that is the thought that changed, you know, everything for a few years. Three years later, um, I was so depressed that I was, I would have a house full of people having a, you know, using party in one room and I would be in the living room by myself, curled up on the couch, just feeling so alone. Hmm. And, um, there was one morning I woke up and I was just like, Skip, you're almost 40 years old. Every opportunity life has given you over the last 20 years, you have just like effed it up. You've, you've self-sabotaged. Today is the day the pain ends. Just get up and go jump in front of the yell. And oh. that's, that's what we call the subway here in Chicago. Right, and yeah. And um, there was something about that thought that um, that moment, that gift of desperation, I call it, that the brain started, the other side of the brain started doing the math. Like, well, if you're almost 40 and you've messed up the last 20 years, why don't you do something? What if you did something the next 20 years to like counterbalance that and do some real good? Then you would live to be 60. Oh my gosh, Skip, if you did that, you could live to be 80. And wow. And I had never seen my life past 40 ever. And when I had that thought, and I remember it very clearly, because remember, I'm a, I'm a songwriter, I'm a lyricist, I'm a poet. Yeah. And what came to mind was your life doesn't have to be over. It could be half over. Wow. And that was the, that was the, the aha moment to get sober. And the, the day, that day, the pain was going to end, but it wasn't going to be because I was going to jump in front of the train. It was because I was going to ask for help. And, you know, so one thought can change our life. Absolutely. If we act on it, we have thoughts all the time. Sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they're not so good. We have 60,000 thoughts a day, I heard. So sometimes they're just repetitive and, you know, some don't really, you know, we, we take action on thoughts all day long, but these big ones stick out. And I had the thought, I'm going to close my recording studio and sell meth. 
I acted on it and it changed the course of my life. Three years later, I had the thought, life doesn't have to be over, it could be half over. And I took action on that thought and it changed the course of my life. So when I, when I got sober and I couldn't play the piano and I couldn't sing, I thought music was gone for my life. And I hated myself for it because of that part of me died. I really felt that part of me died. I killed it, you know, but I wanted to be alive. So I had to be okay with it. So I started taking um, classes at the, um, I started taking art classes at the community college. Nice. So I could have a, you know, a creative outlet and mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it, but I just wanted to do something new. And because it was community college, everything was graded, which I didn't care. But I say that because, well, at first I was getting D's and they were very gratuitous D's, let me tell you, because, you know, I sucked. But again, <laughs> I didn't care. I was just happy to be doing something creative. But at the end of nine months, after a few uh, uh, quarters, my grades went from C's and then I was getting some B's. Um, and so I noticed that, wow, I'm getting better. Something I've never done before and that I never even thought it was in me, but I can do it and I'm getting better. And um, I had, it just dawned on me one day, I don't remember the exact moment, but it was, if I can do this with something I've never done and get better, why can't I do it with music? And so I, I was like, yeah, just start over. So I pulled out like the elementary books and, um, you know, just started from the very beginning to relearn. Aww. And I got it back. It took some time. Um, but I mean, it came back, you know, it, it, it's, you know, within the course of the year, I didn't have my voice back, but my music theory, I was able to start getting music theory back. I was able to play decently. I've never been at like a, a concert pianist, right? Piano has always been for me. It's just writing my songs, more of a tool. And so I, that's when I went back to grad school and uh, said, I'm going to get my master's started score filming score score. Sorry writing film scores for movies. Wow. That's awesome. And um, then I uh, moved to New York to study tap dancing for a, almost two years. Wow. I, I had done that from the age of five to 15, but I got bullied so much that I, and it's no. like, I'm sober and you know, I can, I'm invincible. Didn't really think that, but it was like, I, I'm, I can do things I set my mind to. Yeah. And also during that time I was able, I was because of my it started as I, one of my meetings was they did uh, guided meditations. And so I started doing that. Um, and with the guided meditations, then I started recording them with my music um, and stuff like, so I, I, I was starting to combine things and people, 
heard my guided meditations and then called me and asked me to come to their retreats and be like to lead the guided meditations. So then I was getting out there in, in different settings and people were um, getting to know me and then they were starting to open up to me and share and then looking for guidance. And I started to, that's when I started to notice that these people are, are wanting me to coach them. You know, it was kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, I sponsor people in the 12 steps and that's, this is not the same thing. This was more like a mentor. And that's when I went back to, to school to do that. So hmm. now I work with musicians and artists and creatives who are in recovery um, of some kind, um, whether that is recovery from, you know, coming, you know, a mental illness uh, or drug addiction, trauma recovery, but people who are reclaiming their creativity uh, without the use of drugs or alcohol or with the use of, you know, that's corresponding with their treatment of some kind for these different things. And um, I have like just the, the experience that I went through that I'm able to, you know, I don't tell people exactly what to do, but as a coach, I help them figure out what's your passion, what's important to you, what's the purpose you want to, you, you want to give to this earth. What's, what is it you want to leave? And then, so then how can we take that and manifest it through your creativity? Yeah. Wow. How cool. I love that. It's so good that you, you channeled all of your, <clears throat> your past trauma and different experiences. And now you're helping others. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's what we should all do. And I, I'm doing, um, going through that similar. Actually, I have one certification for life coach and I'm working on another one. And, um, you know, I talk about, I've talked about this a lot lately. I didn't talk about it for years and now I'm talking about it. I actually witnessed my brother commit suicide via telephone. So, um, so I, I want to start helping like teens and different people and, and but not just that I've been through a lot of things. I was a teen mom and just all kinds of stuff, but in abusive relationships and, you know, just a lot of things. But so I feel like, you know, that's most of our purpose is what we can do is channel it for good. But then when we see how we've helped others, that's like such a reward in itself. It's such a, like a natural high, right. To like feel like, Yes, like I've made a difference in their life. Look how much they've came around and changed and you you're there for them and you can see the growth in the process and you already saw it in yourself, but you know, it's hard to see your own self, but when you see it through somebody else, it's such a beautiful thing. What what is your mission when it comes to um coaching? I think it was like 10,000 our musicians or what was it? Yeah, yeah, so I would um I would like to be able to help 10,000 musicians uh, and artists um, by the year 2030. So to, uh, and inspire them to use their gifts in the form of, you know, recording 10,000, a total of 10,000 tracks. Awesome. Um, 
and 10,000 performances, you know? Um, and so how do I keep track of that? I'm still, my, my clientele is still uh, small enough. Um, it's growing, but it's still small enough that I, you know, I work with my, my groups one-on-one -on -one that I'm able to like keep track, but I'm putting together uh, in this next year, a website where people can um, check in like, yeah, I recorded this track and I'm mm -hmm. going to um, create a library of people that I worked with and having them submit their songs, not for any competition or anything like that, but just put it in the <laughs> library. So, you know, everyone can inspire one another and uh, performance. Um, you know, that doesn't matter if they get up at a coffee shop and perform one song. I have one client right now. He used to be, um, he used to be a professional performer um, and stage shows. Um, wow. But now he's afraid to get up to do one song in front of karaoke. Oh. Um, so for him to get up and do one song at karaoke, that performance is huge. Yep. And so it doesn't, then, you know, if he gets back to uh, doing a professional show and he gets into 300 shows a year, that's great. But it took that one karaoke to start the process. And that counts yeah. just as much. If I can help someone get over that, then that's something to truly be celebrated. Absolutely. It's one step at a time, just like you, um, in AA and everything, they talk about the programs. It's like you were talking about the steps. It is you, you know, even if you take five steps forward and it takes you a month, it's still progress, right? Even if we take a step back and, you know, and then we're scared again, we go. So say he goes to go to the karaoke and he's too scared. At least you took the step to go physically. Absolutely. There, right? Yeah. So it's like every step is progress and working towards the goal. So yeah. those little ABC, all those steps, they add up to the final results. So we have to, we have to celebrate those things because it's like you said, what a beautiful accomplishment, even if he does just one performance in front of people and, you know, and I talking, I was like, it's so fearful. So like, it's okay. I started comedy and I was so sick to get on stage that I almost like threw up. Like I, it's scary to me. And so then I actually was in a speaking contest and I'm going to do it again, but I was shaking so bad that I was just, I was scared. And so my message didn't get received like it was supposed to because I was letting the fear. And this just happened like a weekend ago, but the fear was holding me back. So it's like, once we get through those things we're scared of, it's, it, it's like the weight is lifted off of our shoulders. And so it's a journey though. It's like a slow journey. It's not just like A to Z and we're there, bam, you know, you have yeah. to take little tiny steps. I think that's beautiful that you're helping people like that. That's so Danielle, the when you're talking about fear, however great the fear is the opportunity to allow that much more courage. Wow. And courage courage is always available to us. Courage is within us. We keep it trapped. So 
however great the fear is the opportunity to allow that much more courage. Wow. That was really deep. Thank you. That's amazing. But you're right. Absolutely. Um, you can channel your energy to, to being courageous instead of being fearful. And yeah. I saw, I wish I knew his name. It was Lou something. Um, he um, is Asian. I don't know if he's a monk, but he said that the fear is something that's in the future. So we're scared of something that hasn't even happened yet. And he's like, how silly does that sound? When you say it out loud, we're scared of something that doesn't even exist, you know? And so um, when you think of it that way, and like you said, with being courageous, all it takes is we channel that energy, the nervous yeah. energy. Sometimes it's good to be nervous a little bit. And that means you care, but not so fearful that you can't accomplish what you're supposed to do. So yeah. being courageous and, you know, being brave and the fact that I auditioned, I was proud of myself. I was like, I actually went through it. Yeah. Like I wasn't, you know, and so, and that's something they said to us. But so what advice do you have for someone that um, has bipolar and they're working in a career or somebody that's addicted to drugs? What what advice do you have for them? Um, be courageous. Ask for help. It is courageous when, when, when somebody goes into a 12 step meeting for the first time, we applaud them. And that is because we applaud the courage that they are showing by showing up. They are, you know, they're, they're feeling shame. They're feeling fearful. They're, they're walking past all of that, that baby step of walking through those doors and sitting down in a chair. That's why, you know, when they say they have one day clean, we applaud them. And that's why we recognize their courage. Um, you had, and you had just mentioned something about um, faith or fear being afraid of the future. Fear and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're both, they're both um, expecting something that we cannot see and something that hasn't happened yet. So we get to choose faith or fear. We get to choose courage or fear. And it is, that is a choice. Once we are aware of that, once we are aware, once we are aware and we can admit we're powerless over drugs, we can, we become empowered. Like the first step of the 12 steps is we admitted we were powerless and our lives become unmanageable. Well, yeah, I can admit my life's unmanageable, but I'm not powerless. I should be able to stop this on my own. Well, the way to stop it on your own, you know, I should be able to control this. Well, the way to like, get out of that is just don't use it and there's nothing to control, right? But we, we have to become aware of that. Am I powerless over bipolar disorder? Yeah, I am, it's there, but I am empowered. I am empowered when I seek help. I am empowered by seeking help. I am empowered by working with doctors and getting medical treatment. 
um, and taking medication, which is a miracle. Medication is a miracle. Um, I'm empowered when I, you know, get checked up on that regularly. I'm empowered when I have those times like, you know, I'm, I'm doing so well right now. Do I really need these meds? Um, yes. <laughs> right. There's, there's that. Yeah, right. So many people like think that, but I am empowered enough to know that um, life is so good right now, whether I'm taking these, I'm taking these drugs. Why would I want to change it? Because I'm feeling fine right now. Why would I want to, it's the same with, why would I want to risk if I could drink one beer? Life is so good. Why do I need that one beer to even find out? Um, I don't know. That's probably, a, that's, but that's, that's to bring it back in a nutshell, choose courage. It is there. It is readily available and asking. Sometimes it shows up in the smallest of way of just saying to someone, I need help. Yeah. Well, wow. Thank you so much. And um, we all need help sometimes. And so it's, it's beautiful that, that you started your coaching and I'm so grateful for all that you're doing and even if they go to, you know, a psychiatrist or whatever, like somebody get a diagnosis or, or to, like you said, go to the first meeting, that's such a beautiful thing. And it takes a lot of courage, like you said, to do that. So where can we find you? Um, oh, I see your <laughs> website is right there. But if you want to just say it out loud, if somebody's just listening and not. Yeah. Looking at uh, um, skipsams.com. S-K-I-P-S-A-M-S. Uh, you can find me at Skip Sam's on Facebook. That's where I do most of my social media still. I do have uh, Instagram, uh, Sober on Stage, and I'm on TikTok as Sober on Stage. I, I haven't really played with that one yet. My sister says she's going to help me. Um, I do have Aww. a coaching website, mysuccess.coach. It's mysuccess.coach coach, not dot the other one. I don't even want to say it because it confuses people. My success dot coach. Um, but if you Google skip Sam's, my LinkedIn is there. Facebook is there. Um, skip Sam's is a pretty uncommon name. So <laughs> it comes up. All right. That's so awesome. Yes, please reach out. And your coaching, do you also do virtual too? Like if somebody's not all in your area, do you do like almost? Meet? Okay, good. All virtual. 90% is virtual. I have a couple people in Chicago that I'll see occasionally in person, but even still, I, I will. Because right now I'm coaching, I do individual coaching um, a little bit. Mostly what I do right now is is groups, working in small groups. And I have one program called Making Amends with Your Muse. And that is um, a 12-week program about, um, you know, just – and I won't go into it too much, but it's like as we make amends with people and rebuild our relationships, you know, once I – my cat's getting hungry. If you can see him over here. It's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is Stats. He wants – he likes to be hi. Now he doesn't want to be. He usually does. Anyway, I have two cats. They're in the other. <laughs> yeah. He um yeah. So making amends with your muse. Hi. 
is just so like um, yeah uh it's just like making making um amends with your relationship with music kind of like i did and had to start over um and then i have another mu move your music forward in recovery and so that's how to take the tools of recovery that we've learned and apply them to um advancing our music career whether that's as a hobbyist or as a professional um and then i'm i'm starting up uh some um year-long goal programs uh starting in january so that's so awesome well i think that's beautiful and music surely has helped me through so many um instances and i am not a musician but I joke, so I do rap, loosely rap. The uh, intro, I wrote it myself, and I um, do my intro myself. So um, cool. people tease me, and they think, yeah, so I really enjoy it. I love to write stuff. Um, I wrote a sitcom pilot, and um, I um, I'm just wrote some pages for a book that I'm a co-author in, and then I love music. So uh, people said that I need to turn it into a, a real song, but who knows about that <laughs> so yeah so Go i ahead. love music and actually i am yeah i will try <laughs> um i'm actually incorporating that in my life coaching actually so um i was speaking to a uh a millionaire real estate guy and so because my show is about everything i talk to everyone and so he said hey you should be a life coach we were talking off air and i was like i've always wanted to do that and that's before i got my certification and so he said, I told him I wrapped the intro and he's like a rapping like life coach. I've never heard of that. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, cool. So in my, so in my life coaching, I'm actually incorporating that in the program throughout the program. We're going to either write a poem, a rap, a song, something like that. And that's going to be like our, our, our end result. Um, and, and to like see the progress. And I think that's yeah. going to be so fun. And it was something that, you know, him saying that actually gave me that idea. And I, I think that then you'll, yeah, you'll see something written down and not only will you see your notes and your homework and all that stuff and, and the actual results of how you feel, but you'll, you'll have written words down of how you felt through the process. Every week you write down like a line or something. And I yeah. think that would be really cool. So I think what you're doing is amazing. And I really enjoyed talking to you. Your cat is so cute. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yay. Uh, so um, all right. So if you guys need him, reach out to him. He's doing beautiful, wonderful things. And I'm very proud of you for all that you yeah. have accomplished in your life. And you're welcome in the process that, you know, I mean, you just literally are using it for good. And I'm, I'm so proud of you. I've seen so many people pass away from drug addictions and everything. And so the fact that you're making a difference in people's lives in your own life and it just shows that your your purpose on this earth, you probably have a lot of uh, purposes, but one of them is to help others and to make a difference and to just show them like you can get through this, right? So I'm thankful for you. Thank you for talking to us. It means a lot to me. Thank you for sharing your your vulnerable story. I mean, it's just, it's very vulnerable to talk about those things. And um I'm just, I'm very grateful for you and how far you come. So great job. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, I would love to keep in touch with you and just, um, you know, see how you're doing. And yeah, and um, I, your coaching is amazing. Like it just, 
just the whole premise of it. And, and because you're a writer, the way that the names, I love names of stuff. And I love the names that you said. I'm like, ooh, that is clever. <laughs> I think it's so cool. So, um, all right, we will talk again. And thank you so much. And thank you have you. a beautiful day. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye, Skip. Bye. Thanks for listening to Authentic Points of View podcast. I hope that something you heard today changes your point of view. If you would like to share your views, please email me at authenticpointsofview at gmail.com or leave a comment on Facebook at Authentic Points of View podcast. Remember, always be mindful of other people's journeys and have open ears and an open heart. listening to authentic points of view podcast i hope that something you heard today changes your point of view if you would like to share your views please email me at authentic points of view at gmail.com or leave a comment on facebook at authentic points of view podcast remember always be mindful of other people's journeys and have open ears and an open heart